You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2017. Today's episode is titled, Self-Deception Impairs Business. For the workplace to function well, management must promote equitable dealings. All stakeholders must subscribe and be committed to this standard. Anyone associated with an organization and who is self-deceived will be unable to profoundly live up to this metric. When management discovers self-deceived stakeholders, prompt remediation must be offered. And if remediation fails, then timely replacement must be executed. Cultures that tolerate self-deceived stakeholders will be toxic and impaired in their ability to conduct business equitably. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Walk the Talk. Well, this morning we want to continue our discussions out of the book of James, and uh, the topic I have selected for today is called Walk the Talk. I think it's fairly self-explanatory. One of the common things in my experience as a believer in Christ, uh, particularly when I was young, was to deal with hypocrisy. Uh, This would be people who would claim to be Christians, but when you examine their life, they didn't live that way at all. And that, of course, did not gender much uh, respect or confidence in those people at all. But sadly, that appears to be a fairly common phenomena in Christianity today. And James here is uh, dealing with that or beginning to deal with that in chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. So let me uh, read this text, and then uh, we'll do an exposition of it and some application as well. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For when he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James, of course, is writing his um, epistle to early believers who were Jewish by training. They were scattered throughout uh, Asia and probably into Europe. They were, they were well trained in the Old Testament scriptures, so he doesn't feel necessary, uh, to explain a lot of theology to them. He assumes they know that. He is going to focus on, on application, and specifically the application of the Lordship of Christ. The focus of the book is on the present tense aspect of salvation. Of course, salvation, it consists of three basic tenses. The past tense is being saved from the penalty of sin. The present tense is being saved from the power of sin. And the future tense is being saved from the presence of sin. So when we come to Christ, we are regenerated, we are born again. That's the past tense aspect of it. It's a sovereign work of God. We do nothing to earn it. But now the way that you know someone truly knows the Lord is that they're continually being empowered to overcome sin. So this is the idea of the present tense aspect, the sanctification aspect. Sanctification doesn't save us, but sanctification reveals whether or not we are saved. 
So we do have responsibility in this process of sanctification, which is why James has written his book. Most of his book is about sanctification, how to live under the Lordship of Christ. And so he continues that in uh, the end of chapter 1 here. Now, the backdrop to this is the verses prior to this. He's talked about things like how to view circumstances, particularly difficult circumstances in life. It's about being metaphysically aware. He talked about how to ask for wisdom for trials and tribulations of life, and we have to ask in faith, not doubting at all. Furthermore, he talked about what it is to uh, to really rejoice in our future tense aspect of salvation and recognizing the fact that temporal wealth can never take care of the sin problem. Temporal wealth is simply, therefore, a tool to enable us to do the will of God. He warns against trying to blame God for hard circumstances. You know, it's natural for anyone who believes in the sovereignty of God to want to blame God for something that goes bad or what is perceived to be bad. But God doesn't work that way. God is not the tempter. He doesn't tempt you to sin. But God does test. And the tests that he do he does are really fairly easy because he just uses our own own natural proclivities for these these environments to test us. He's not the cause or he's not trying to cause us to sin for the purpose of us to of failing that that test. He rather is redemptive and he takes tests and he redeems them as venues to sanctify us. So the admonition we have here now is to walk in light of the reality of Christ at work to transform us in the midst of trials and tribulations of life. So one of the first ways that we need to walk this out is we have to walk as doers of the word and not hearers only. You see, in Christianity, it's not enough to hear the word. If that's all you do, you are just deceived. In fact, this word for deceiving here is a word that means false reasoning. You've got false thinking going on in you to think you can hear the word and that's enough, that you don't have to do anything. Now, when you hear the word, you are responsible now to obey that word, whatever it is. So that is a general principle of how to walk in the will and ways of God, is be obedient to the revelation God gives you. God unfolds things to us in his time and in his ways, and he is expecting us to line up with it. And then he gives us a picture. If we try to be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he says this, we're like a person who looks at ourselves in a mirror. So we see our image in a mirror, and then we walk away and forget what we look like. Now, almost no one does that. I mean, you look at a mirror of yourself, and you kind of remember what you look like. So he's, he's pointing out this is something that's really not even natural to do that. Why would you think that you can go be a hearer of the word and not a doer? That's not even natural. And the reality is we need to learn to look at the perfect law, the complete law. And the law, of course, is a picture of the revelation of God, the written revelation of God we have in Scripture. And this law is perfect in the sense that it will accomplish its purpose. And the purpose of the law is always bring us into alignment with God. The law is about us doing the will of God according to the ways of God. So we want to be focused on that. Then he goes on and he, he gives us another way to look at that. He calls the, the law not only the perfect law, but the law of liberty. Most of us love the idea of law of liberty because we like the idea of freedom, and we immediately think you know, worldly thoughts about this because 
liberty or freedom to most people means freedom to do what they want to do. That's not the sense of it here. The liberty he's talking about is freedom from the boundaries of sin and the the uh, the captivity of sin to enable us to live obedient to the will and the ways of God. So that's the law of liberty. It's liberty from sin to obey God. So when you see it that way, you recognize what the purpose of Scripture really is. Scripture is here to bring us into alignment with God. Now, some people say, well, that means boundaries. That means restrictions. That That isn't liberty. No, it is liberty. It is liberty from sin. It is not liberty for you to sin, which is what most of us want liberty to do. It's liberty from sin so that we can truly obey Christ. So we have this law of liberty, this perfect law. Then uh, we're told to persevere, and perseverance is defined here. One who persevere is a doer and not just a hearer. A hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, you know, basically the hearer who forgets is not a doer. It takes a doer, someone who's obedient to the truth of the Word of God in every area of life, you know, to be a perseverer. So perseverance is obedience. It's an interesting definition of perseverance. Many of us think we persevere because we just endure something. No, that's not necessarily true. If you endure by obey obedience through that enduring, then that's that's good. That's what he's talking about. So perseverance has the qualify, qualification of persevering in obedience to the truth of the Word of God. If you do this, you will be blessed. Now, if anyone thinks he's religious, now this word religious here is a word that is really a playoff of an Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, the idea of being a worshiper or being religious was being someone who was had the fear of the Lord, who was characterized by the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is really all about alignment with God. It's all about recognizing he's God in every area of life. So if you think you walk in the fear of the Lord or you worship God in the fear of the Lord, but your tongue is out of control, then you are deceiving yourself. You are you are not in reality. Now, you notice this is the second time he's mentioned deception in this text. First time he talked about this, we deceive ourselves when we think when we're hearers but not doers. That's deception. And now when you don't bridle your tongue, that is also deception. So deception is a is any time we live inconsistent with truth. That is what deception is. And when you do that, then your efforts to walk with God, to worship God, are really devoid of force. He uses the word worthless here. It means there's no power. You see, the thing about Christianity is when you came to Christ, you were empowered. And to be empowered, you need to be, you know, demonstrating the fact that you are in that reality by obeying and aligning with the Word of God. So how you bridle your tongue or whether you bridle your tongue or not is a clue as to whether or not that power is operative in you and really transforming you and aligning you with the purpose of God. Then he talks about, again, the same idea, worship, pure worship in terms of the fear of the Lord, that is pure and undefiled. And these are Old Testament illusions. Remember in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which all pointed to Christ, you know, it was very important that sacrifices be pure and undefiled. That is, there are no blemishes. They were exactly what needed to be because you were sacrificing to try to gain God's acceptance. 
Of course, Christ was the ultimate pure and undefiled sacrifice, so that now no longer a sacrifice is needed. So this is the kind of worship we're trying to get to, is pure worship, worship that truly does align with God. And he says to us, the way that you do this is that you visit orphans and widows. Now, this word visit is very interesting because to us, a visit sounds like just a casual thing where we get together and we have a conversation. Or we might use the term hang out. That's a common word today. We hang out. I hear Christians talking about they just want to hang out. They think that's what Christianity is. I actually heard a pastor make that comment that to him Christianity was just hanging out with other believers. Wow, that is a very, very low-level understanding. This word visit here comes from the word. It's a compound word in the Greek language, which means someone who is an observer or watchman who's carefully looking out or looking over someone. It's almost like a manager, an overseer, a superintendent, and specifically overseeing someone who is not connected to a male. Orphans and widows, what they have in common is they don't have male oversight. So widows don't have male oversight because their their husband is deceased. Orphans have been abandoned. So both of these lack male oversight. Now, in the first century culture, um, widows uh, really didn't have any standing. In fact, any single woman did had no standing. Uh, the only standing any woman had was by virtue of marriage. And a woman had no rights, so if a man wanted to divorce a woman, he could, but a woman could not divorce a man. And if a man divorced a woman, it was effectively the sentence of death. So here we have have people, widows, they're not divorced, but they're widowed, and therefore they don't have men overseeing them, orphans or children that don't have male oversight. And so what he's saying here is that if you really want to express the fear of God, if you really want to express the worship of God in your life, take care of these people that don't have male oversight. They need it. Now, you might say, why do we need male oversight? Well, keep in mind, even though males and females are ontologically equal, that is, in our being, we are the same, there's still a a structure in God's creation. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the man is the head of the woman in terms of responsibility. And the woman then is to submit to the man. So it, this is not, has nothing to do with ontology. It has to do with how God has delegated authority to function. So male oversight is necessary for everyone, for, male, for orphans and for widows. And this is a great way to express what real Christianity is, what it is to truly worship God. And then he says one other final thing here that's kind of stunning. So another way that you know that your worship of God is pure and undefiled is you keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, to be unstained from the world means that you're not contaminated by the world, the world's way of thinking. And the world offers up a false view of reality. It's a view of reality that tries to define things. For example, today we have the culture trying to define marriage inconsistent with the Word of God. It's trying to define, you know, gender identity, inconsistent with the Word of God. It's trying to say certain sexual relationships are okay, inconsistent with the Word of God. So these are examples of the world's systems that are not correct. They're not biblically aligned. And anytime we submit to those worldly definitions, we have become stained by worldly thinking. 
So to keep oneself unstained, we cannot submit to worldly thinking, whether it's relative to ethical issues or relative, say, to financial issues, which you'll discuss later in this book. He's going to point out that if you don't recognize what money really is and you think it's a sign of success or significance, you are deceived. And that is you are being stained by the world. He also says, tells us later in the book what strategic planning really is, and that is a process of discerning the will of God. If you think strategic planning is about trying to figure out how to make the most money, you are stained by the world. And if you think that that you can let your brother uh, go astray and not, not go and try to, to reel him back into alignment with the will and ways of God, you think you're not your brother's keeper, you are being stained by the world. So there are a number of things. In fact, you could argue that the rest of this book is outlining ways that you could be stained by the world and offering you biblical ways to approach these various issues so you can be unstained from the world. So this is a powerful phrase here. It's a very short phrase at the end. It almost goes unnoticed when you focus on taking care of widows and orphans. You think you don't give a lot of attention to this last phrase, but I would submit this last phrase is very, very powerful. This is the phrase that's telling us we must learn to think as Christians and live as Christians. If we can't do that, we will be stained by worldly thinking. And one of the, I guess, sad things for me is being trying to teach and, and disciple people in the body of Christ is I see over and over again, wherever I go, I don't care what continent I'm on, I see professing Christians stained by the world, stained by worldly thinking, stained by virtue of understanding almost nothing about how to think biblically, because by and large, the training that happens in Christianity today is either so low level or the people are unable to hear much profound truth. So this is a really high call. A high calling to rise up to obedience and alignment with the will and ways of God. It's a high calling to our sanctification in Christ. Well, let me synthesize uh, what I think this section says into a command. And keep in mind that we are trying to learn the commands of Christ, but it, because in the, what we call the Great Commission, we're told to betray people to obey the commands of Christ. And most of us don't have a clue what that is. Well, James gives us in this book um, a number of commands. I've synthesized it into probably 20 commands, and uh, you could argue more or less. So I, I have no problem with that. I'm just trying to come up with what I think James is saying here. So the command that I see in this text that I think is most seminal is this. To meekly receive the implanted word means to live with integrity. Integrity is being consistent with the truth that God reveals to us. And to fail to live this way means that we are deceived about our salvation. You see, the only way that anyone validates that they're truly saved is by virtue of how they live. How they live doesn't save them, but it reveals whether or not they are saved. So we've got to get very, very clear on that. So this, I think, is, is a command that we can synthesize from this particular section of Scripture each section of James, you can synthesize a command and to kind of summarize what he's saying there. And I think that's a very good exercise as we try to understand the commands of Christ and understand how to train people into living according to these commands. 
So let me just give you some application here real quickly before we do our Q&A. One of the things to see here is an obvious thing is that there's a strong warning against uh, false religious leaders. And one of, the, my, one of my favorite things to do when I go into various uh, communities of believers is I want to ask them if they, are, they know who the false religious leaders are in this area. And I find almost no one ever has any sense of that. That's not something they think about. They just assume that anyone that, that calls themselves a Christian and holds himself as a leader, that, that they're a Christian leader. And so they are duped. They're deceived. Well, part of what we have to learn here through this text is we've got to learn who to, to discern who the real leaders are. And the real leaders will be people of integrity. They will walk the talk. They will live out the reality of Christ in them. So we have to be very tuned into that. Another thing we need to take away from this is uh, something that's more, you know, culturally relevant today. As James talks about the importance of overseeing, not visiting, overseeing those who are or don't have male oversight over them, the Christian community needs to step up. And we have a whole new category of women that do not have male oversight. They're, they're called divorcees. Divorcees in, in our culture today are just, it's like an epidemic. It's a plague because we have allowed no-fault divorce, and people are divorcing left and right. The statistics are that if you get married today, that there's roughly a 50% probability that you will wind up divorced. And so you see all these women abandoned by their, their husbands, they need male oversight in a healthy, godly way. Now, don't, this is not a license to get out of order. This is a mandate to think about what, what is the responsibility of the Christian community to help this category of women that exist to a large degree by virtue of cultural norms that are staining our culture. So we cannot let these cultural norms stain us. We have to rise up and respond to it. So this is a great application of this training is to be seeking the Lord on how to help these divorcees, how to oversee them in a healthy way. Another thing that happens is we have great deception in worship. You know, when I grew up as a Baptist, um, on the the uh, sign out in front of our building that we met in, we called it a church, which that is a misnomer. It's maybe a church building, but it's not a church. But there was a sign out there, and it would say 11 a.m. on Sunday morning was worship. Now, what that meant is that you would come in at 11 a.m., and there would be two songs, and uh, at most three, and there would be an offering, announcements, and then there would be a 30-minute message, and then there would be an altar call, and you'd be dismissed at noon so you could go have lunch. So that was called worship, and that's what I grew up hearing as worship. Later, when I got into the Bible church stream, uh, I saw that they would do a similar kind of thing, but they would now put more emphasis on the teaching uh, and less emphasis on some of the other things. And so they would still do an hour service, but it was mostly teaching as opposed to in very little singing. And they would call that worship. And then you get into the charismatic stream of today, and you wind up with these long music sessions and we call that worship. So we've got this, these definitions of worship that we have culturally accepted. And while there may be some merit in some of these definitions, they're not very profound. 
And James has given us a clue to what a more profound view of worship is. A more profound view of worship has to do with how you deal with things that are out of order. They are not lined up with God's will and ways. Children and women who do not have male oversight is an out-of-order reality. Divorcees who do not have male oversight, out-of-order reality. The Christian community needs to rise up as a point of worship and put this into order. Worship, there are two aspects of worship in Scripture. If you look at the words that are translated worship, one word means to bow down and kiss, and the other word means to serve. Neither word has a music implication. The idea of music being connected to worship comes from inferences in the Old Testament, which I'm not opposed to those inferences, but if that is your definition, just the Old Testament idea, you are missing what the New Testament has to say about worship. And it's telling us worship it happens in getting things aligned with the will and ways of God. So we've got to face this reality that we're very deceived about worship. And a second aspect of this is the reality of, again, living unstained by the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about our spiritual worship, and it's expressed by the process of being transformed in our thinking so we can think biblically we don't think like the world. And that is, that's how we are unstained, is when we replace the worldly thinking with biblical thinking, and now we walk in light of that biblical thinking, that is real worship. That is how we serve the Lord through our lifestyles. So we have to learn to live biblically in every area of life if we are going to be a real worshiper of God. Otherwise, you're just going to be a pretender, a fake, and you're probably going to be deceived because you think you're a great worshiper because you go do expressive singing. I am not against expressive singing. I think it's wonderful, but it is far from a complete definition of worship. And I would say if that is what you think worship largely is, that you're deceived. And I think the Christian community has lots of deception in that regard. So may the Lord give us grace to really see what James is saying here about what, what it is to truly be a worshiper of God, to bridle the tongue, to properly oversee those who don't have male oversight as they should, and to keep ourselves unstained from the world by living according to a Christian worldview. These are three great ways that we worship, very biblical ways to worship. May we have grace to do that well. In Jesus' name, amen.